Welcome to Rancho Baptist Church. This message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning services. It is good to be with you on this Christmas Sunday morning of 2019, and today Pastor Jason finishes his Christmas series in part four of The Coming King in a sermon he's entitled, Beheld in a Stable. Please turn to Luke chapter 2, and today we're looking at verses 1 through 7. Here's Jason. And welcome again to Rancho Baptist Church. I am Pastor Jason, the senior pastor here, and we are taking a a break from the book of Acts, as Pastor Eric said. We've been doing that for the entire month, and I just have to be honest that this morning presented me with what I, I would have to say, one of the hardest passages of Scripture I, I've been studying um, since becoming pastor here. Why? Because it's so familiar, and, and, and when we come to it, we always assume that we, that we have a proper understanding of it. And, and I was pretty humbled this week as I, as I studied it. The, the main reason is, because I think you would agree with me, we tend to have this way of taking something incredibly extraordinary, extraordinary, and we make it ordinary. We do it every day. You guys probably don't even recognize it. Let let me just throw out some things. How many of you drove this morning? Exactly. We we, we all get in our cars each morning, but but do we stop and do we think about just the wonder of a car? That, that we no longer have to take horses or that, that you're in a place where you have to walk, but you actually get to, to drive in a car and it doesn't break down on you. And, and, and yet you just get in the car and you just go from point A to point B. You don't even think about how wonderful it is that we actually have cars. Or, or how about airplanes? You know, for so many years, my family flew from L.A. to Australia. Do you know how long that takes? That takes 14 hours in a plane. And we'd get so many thousands of miles up in that plane and we'd just be cruising. And, and I must admit to you that I didn't stop and go, oh, thank you, Lord, for the miracle of modern science that we actually can sit in this how many thousand pound airplane and not worry about it falling from the sky. I just took it for granted, right? And I, I believe we do this even more when it comes to creation, that's all around us. And don't worry about the blinking light. At some point, that will get fixed. Okay? It's a distraction for me. It's a distraction for you. It's good for us. Part of our sanctification. <laughs> Particularly mine. <laughs> what do you think as we, as we consider God's creation? How about the sun? What, what we generally do is we take it for granted, especially on a day like this. We want to go outside, we want to sit under its beams, and, and we want to be warm by the sun. But do we actually consider just how massive and amazing the sun is? I don't. Do you know that the sun and the power that the sun has, the heat that the sun generates, by the time it gets to the earth, do you know what percentage or what fraction of the actual power that the sun has, how much of that hits the earth? It's, I don't even know what this is. 0.45 billion. I mean, what, how, how many zero, how many exponents to the zero t- times 10 is that? Ask a math guy, <laughs> right? 
How many is that? That means that I don't even think I could put my fingers close enough to show how small of the power of the sun that actually comes and heats our earth. And yet it's more than enough to keep us warm and also to now have energy that we get from the sun, right? That's how we lived in Papua New Guinea. We lived off of solar panels. That's how we kept our computers running, everything running. That's how many of you now cut the cost for your electricity, right? You, you harness the energy from the sun. And yet we don't even recognize just how incredibly powerful that sun is. Why? Because we take it for granted. We take the extraordinary of God's creation and we make it ordinary. Or, or think about this thing that in Papua New Guinea they said was a turtle that was thrown into the air. That is the, the moon. How often do you stop and you even notice the moon? Well, you notice it probably recently because we've had so many beautiful full moons, right? But do you stop and think about what would happen if that moon was a little bit larger or a little bit nearer to the earth? Either one, if it was larger or if it was nearer, you know what happened? All of our seasons would change. And, and there'd be so much ice that the equator would bulge and everything would change and then, and then it could no longer sustain life. Or, or what would happen if the way that the earth was tilted changed from that 23 degrees tilt that we're all wondering, well, what's up with that? And it, and it changed to, to 90 or something else. Do you know what happened? We, we wouldn't be able to live on this earth. That, that is the, the, the perfectness behind and the intricacy of our God and His creation. And yet what do we do? We just look at it and go, oh, that's great. It's a full moon. Isn't that beautiful? And yet the reality is that is an extraordinary thing. That is part of God's creation. But what do we do? We minimize it. We, we make it so small. And think about this. Okay, so if that is God's creation... And that in itself is enough to, to just not allow us to fully understand or grasp the significance of, of what the power is, whether we're talking about the sun or whether we're talking about the moon. If we can't truly grasp that, how in the world can we grasp what we are going to look at this morning in Luke chapter 2, God becoming man? How can we understand that? How can we understand a God who can make a son like that? Speak it into existence. How can we understand that God who now, the infinite God, who now becomes finite? Can we truly understand that? Can we truly grasp the significance of this? And, and, and think about this. Okay. On, on the one hand, it's, it's the finite trying to grasp. And Sorry, I've got to take this thing off. Can we truly grasp as finite beings the infinite God? But on the other side, what we are going to see this morning is the infinite God. The infinite God being dressed in humanity, coming to us, coming down to us. And yet, as He is God, He is 100% God. He does not stop being God even though He comes to this earth. And in a sense, what we could say is His infiniteness, His Godness is not limited by His humanity. Right? He's still 100% man, but He's 100% God. And as we consider that, 
And as we are going to look at Luke chapter 2 this morning, there is something missing in, in the text that we're going to look at. And, and I believe what that would be is it would be some sort of veil. Some sort of something that, that keeps Jesus and His Godness from being fully exposed. Because think with me just for a moment back to Exodus 33 and Moses. Do you remember what Moses does? What Moses says? Moses is, is a man who walked with God, right? He was a, a friend of God. God communicated with him. And at one point, Moses tells God, Hey, you know what? I want to see you this morning. That's what, what I've entitled this sermon. Beheld in the manger. What, what we are trying to do, we want to see Jesus Christ. What did Moses say? He wanted to see God. And then, and then God responds, okay, okay. You can see me, but it has to be by my terms. First, I'm going to take you and I'm going to hide you in a cleft of a rock because if it were up to you, you would not know where to go. You don't even know how to hide from me. That's how glorious I am. So I'm going to have to do that for you. And then when I pass by, you cannot even look at my face. If you looked at my face, done. So, so what's going to happen, Moses, is I'm going to pass by and all you're going to get a glimpse of is the back of my robe. And even that is enough to just change the way that Moses looked, right? Okay, and now what we are going to see this morning is we're going to see something much greater than that. We're going to see God become man. How come when Mary has baby Jesus, she doesn't just die right there on the spot as she looks at Him, right? This is God. I, I believe the reason is because He, he veils his godness. This is very similar to what we see in Philippians. So, so turn with me to, to Philippians chapter 2. As we see again an, another passage of Scripture that we're very familiar with. But I think what we end up doing is we take the extraordinary and we make it ordinary. We make it normal. And there is nothing normal about Christmas. There is nothing normal about the birth of Jesus Christ. I mean, look at this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. He's talking about humility. Paul's trying to encourage them to be humble as Christ was humble. And look at how he displayed his humility who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What, what do you do with these verses? What, what do you do with this aspect where it says that He existed in the form of God, a.k.a. He is God, He was God, He forever will be God, but He did not regard this equality with God as something to be grasped? What, what does that mean? I, it, it means that, that, that He 
he didn't hold on to his deity. That, that word grasped literally means to seize something of value. It's used in the, in the form of seizing a prize, seizing some sort of treasure and holding on to it because you recognize how valuable it is. And in this case, the context is, what is he not seizing? He's not seizing his own godness. He's not seizing his own deity. He doesn't say, no, I'll do anything but that. I won't become man. I won't go down there. Why? Because it's more important for me to stay exactly the way that I am. I will let humanity suffer. And I will not bridge this gap. He doesn't do that. He says, no, he holds it with an open hand and he says yes i will go down yes i will come down and so he came down and and just think about that with me for a moment i I don't believe in any time of of eternity i don't know how long it will take for us to grasp the significance of what christ left but i don't believe even after a thousand years of reigning with christ in a glorified state where we no longer have sin obscuring everything. I don't believe even after a thousand years of beholding Him for who He is, that we will still get it. That's how glorious He is. That's how amazing He is. That that He would leave the blessedness of heaven for what? For the bruises of crucifixion and torture. That He would leave the excellencies of heaven for the executions found on this earth. That that He would leave the glory place of heaven for this the glory place. That He would leave the kindness of heaven for what? For the killing of the earth. The incredible majesties of heaven for the miseries of this earth. I, I could go on and on that He would leave the throne of heaven for the tree of Calvary. And why did He do all this? Because He knew that we could not ascend to Him, so He descended to us. I can speak of all these things. I can talk about them. But the reality is, there, there is a fact in all of this that it is unspeakable. We, we can look at, and we will. Let's, let's turn, we will look at Luke chapter 2. Turn there. We, we can read this, and many of us have been reading this for years, Right? And we've been hearing this for years. We can read this. We can know it. But to a certain extent, it's totally unknowable. For how great He is. Listen, I I do not presume to have a corner of the market, to have even a, a, a realistic understanding of this. This is why this is so hard to preach. Because this is something so well beyond me. And so I'm coming to this text this morning, and I believe we all come to this text seeking God's grace. That that this morning, that as we come to this lowly manger, and, and as we peer into this manger, that by His grace and His grace alone, that we will see the remarkable. That we will see the amazing. That we will see what defies human logic, human understanding. We will see that, that this is indeed a plan that none of us could come up with. And yet this is His plan. His amazing plan. And and if I wasn't going to entitle the sermon this, be held in the manger, I would have said the most amazing gift. The greatest gift. For that is what we are going to see this morning. Look at Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 with me. 
Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them. In the end, let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, that there is no way that we can truly grasp this without your help. Lord, we want to peer into the manger and we want to see Jesus Christ for who he is. For your son, humbling himself and taking on flesh. Help us to do that this morning. Lay me aside, Lord, and allow your Holy Spirit to to guide us into all truth and to fill our hearts with worship and thankfulness for this incredible truth that you came to the earth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we know that theologically we would say that that this is the incarnation. This is God becoming man and that that it is one of the foundation stones of our faith. Right? Because if you don't have this, you can't have the cross. And and this is really just one step forward towards the cross. And and so the two are, are, are fit in like a hand in a glove with one another. And so this is something we should rejoice in. And this morning in particular, as we are only several days away from Christmas, I believe the Lord wants us to truly understand the reason for this season. And through that, we are going to see first that this is indeed God's plan. Second, that this is indeed God's promise. And finally, that this is God's present to the world. That He is God's present to the world. And look at the first several verses, verses 1 to 3. As we see, this is God's plan. Don't think for a minute that this was about Caesar Augustus. Don't think for a minute that this was about the census. This is about God. This is about God accomplishing what He was planning on doing. This is about God's plan coming to fruition. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken for all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Well, it certainly looks to me like, Pastor Jason, this has everything to do with this man, Caesar Augustus. Wasn't it he that went ahead and issued the census? But this was Caesar Augustus, only in the fact that that is the instrument the Lord uses. This is the Lord orchestrating all these things. Think about this. 
How many hundreds of thousands of people, in fact, some commentators say millions, were part of the empire at this time. And so what does God do? In order to accomplish His plan, He moves millions of people in order so that He can allow Mary and Joseph to go from where to where? To go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. This is God's plan. Caesar didn't understand that. I doubt that even Mary and Joseph understood that. All they were doing was what they were told to do. And yet, in all of this, this is God's plan. How do we know? Because God's plans always come true. God's plans always work. Our plans don't. We come up with all sorts of plans that end up falling in the end. They fall short and they fail. God's plan never fails. And perhaps this is an encouragement to you. As you consider this, maybe today you're in a position where you're like, man, I certainly would love to see God's plan work for me like that. Because right now I'm not too happy with God's plan. I thought God's plan was this for me, but instead I'm over here. And and this is hard. (laughs) This is tough. And think about Joseph and Mary. They, They had to travel a hundred miles to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Do you think that they were like, yes, okay, I can hardly wait. Yes, let's go tomorrow. No, that this wasn't a place where you could just jump on a plane and, and travel from point A to point B and get there in an hour. This would take them a long time. An entire week of walking. And so no doubt in their minds when this first was revealed, they were like, no, this is not a good idea. But was this indeed a good idea? Yes, this was the best idea because this was God's plan. So no matter where you're at this morning, you you need to take encouragement from Mary and Joseph recognizing that even though you may not look at this as a good idea, that you may not look at this as a good plan, this is God's plan. And just as Jesus said to His disciples with the Great Commission, hey, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all the nations. And you know what? I'll be with you every step of the way. And God is with you no matter where you're at this morning, as far as how his plan might not have come out to be your plan. But it's his plan. And so God uses this emperor to accomplish his plan, to direct the steps of Mary and Joseph to get them exactly where he wanted them. But we're going to see it's greater than that. The coming of the King, the coming of Jesus, was not only God's plan, but it was also God's promise. Of all the ways to describe Joseph, look at the way that Luke describes Joseph in verses 4 and 5. Luke chapter 2. As we see, indeed, this is God's promise. This points all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Actually, it points back further than that. But in particular, it points back to the Davidic covenant. Look at verses 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. So this 
Not only was God's plan, but this was God's promise pointing back to King David, saying that from the line of King David, one of King David's children, one of his great-grandchildren, one of the heirs of David was going to be the coming Messiah. And so this had to be the case. But do you see, it goes even deeper than that. It, It goes to the city of Bethlehem. This is where God wanted to bring them. But if I was going to write this, I wouldn't have written it like this. I wouldn't have presented it like this. First, Luke doesn't tell us enough. My my first question is, why did Mary go along? She didn't have to go along. And this was a, a long journey where she could have been hurt. She could have lost the baby. All sorts of things. It doesn't make human sense. And yet, this is what the Lord has for them. What is the Lord thinking, allowing this to happen? Could it be that that Mary and Joseph had some sort of working knowledge of of a verse like Micah 5.2, which says that that from Bethlehem, in Bethlehem, the Savior of the world was going to come? Well, I don't read anything that would lead us to believe that they were thinking, oh yes, we need to go to Bethlehem in order to have this child because he's going to be the coming Messiah. No, they are forced to go to Bethlehem by the Lord because they weren't cluey enough to understand these kinds of things. But in this, we we see it pointing back to the fact that this was indeed God's promise. Pointing back to such verses as Micah 5.2 and to the Davidic covenant. Letting us know that yes, this was God's plan, but this was also God's promise. And once he gets God's plan all settled, and he has God's promise now presented to where, yes, we understand why they need to go to Bethlehem, then we see this, that God is now ready to present us with the most important aspect of what we see in this scripture that, that, that again goes beyond me, and that is this, that God in His goodness, in His grace, because of His great love, He presents us with His present, God's present. Look at verses 6 and 7. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in claws and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Again, we're we're not told exactly why Joseph brings Mary, but he brings her. But do you notice in in, in verse 6 what it says? While they were there. Does that give you the idea that, that right when they arrived, they couldn't find a place and so then they went knocking for around at doors and then they ended up in the stable. No, the idea here is that they were there for a while. That they had been there when all of this happens. And even though I know that, that, that the way that we tend to look at this is the way it's been depicted in movie after movie after movie, in the way that we even do it like in churches and in schools when we do the nativity scene, Right? Mary and Joseph, they get to Bethlehem. And they get to Bethlehem the very night where she's going and 
into labor. And she has to stop. And, and Joseph's like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. And he's running all around. And that has a whole lot more excitement to it. And yet I, I don't believe we see that here. We're, we're not told exactly when they do get to Bethlehem. We just know that they were there for a while before it came to this point. All that we can really be for sure is that they didn't come to Bethlehem before she was three months pregnant. Why? Because she was with Elizabeth and Zacharias up to three months. And then from three months on, any time at that point, they could have come to Bethlehem. So they could have been in Bethlehem for a couple months before all of this even happened. It could have been that they were spending time with family or friends. And then as the census and everybody starts showing up, then possibly maybe they're kicked out of that particular place. And so then they have to go looking for another place. But even in all of this, we see that the Lord is working about His purpose, His plan in order to give humankind, all of mankind, this God's present. Because look at what it says. It says, the days were completed for her to give birth. If you're like me, you think of that just in normal terms of every pregnant woman, right? The nine month comes up and, and it's, it's now, okay, she's come to full term. And so now what every woman does generally, okay, some come a little bit early, but, but this is what happens, right? This is just the normal course of pregnancy. And so when the nine months were up, boom, she has the baby. That's not what this word means. When it says this phrase, the days were completed, it has this idea of a prophetic sense. It's pointing back to something. It's not talking about physiology. It's not talking about physically that now the nine months comes. It is going back to a prophetic sense that that this is the time for the fulfillment of prophecy to be completed. No doubt pointing back to everything that God had said up to this point about the coming Messiah. And now He is saying, hey, the days have been completed. It is now time for this to happen. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians. So so turn forward just a little bit to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. And this is how we can know for sure when it says the days were completed that it's not just talking about her having a baby. But the days being completed is, is talking about the fulfillment of God's plan, of God's promise, in order for Him to present to the world His present. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. As Paul uses very similar terminology, but in the sense of it happening within a promise. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a, worm, of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the fullness of time came, what, what's it speaking of? The exact time of the birth of Jesus was already known. It was, it was already calculated. It was predetermined. It was ordained before the beginning of time that this birth was no accident. This birth wasn't merely because she had come to her ninth month of pregnancy. It goes deeper and further than that. 
This is not some divine afterthought pointing back to Genesis where Adam and Eve sin and God's wondering, oh now, okay, what do we do now? No, it goes back further than that. God is never surprised. God is never behind. God is never late. He's always on time. And that should be an encouragement to us this morning. Right? That God is always on time. He's doing things according to His plan, to His purpose, not ours. Just as He's doing it here with Mary and Joseph. And this is all part of His purpose and His plan to to become man. Turn back with me to, to Luke. And let's look again at verse 7. As we'll see, this, this present comes in such an unexpected way. In a way that seems so ordinary, but it's so ex- extraordinary. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Notice in all of these verses, we, we actually hear more about Caesar Augustus, about, about the census, than we do about the actual birth of Jesus Christ. You see that? It's only in, really, verse 7. But really, it's, it's two sentences, starting in verse 6, giving the background, the time, that, that the time has come to where the Savior is to be born. But then when it comes to actually describing the birth of the Son of God, look at it. It's just one sentence. And notice, it it, it doesn't have all of the lights and all the grandeur and all the magnificence of what you would think should happen when the Son of God becomes man. All of that is missing. It's given to us in in just a very plain and simple and normal sense. In fact, it's, it's even not normal. Because this is not where a normal baby would be born. He wouldn't be born in a manger with animals. And so in that sense, it's it's even a humbler, a lower version of what a normal birth looks like. Why is God presenting it to us like this? He's taking something so extraordinary and He's flipping it and presenting it to us as ordinary. Perhaps the whole reason is because there's no way we would fully grasp it. Because it's too great for us to fully understand what this represents. And so to a certain extent, maybe he's actually leaving it up to our our imaginations. He's leaving it up to us so that throughout eternity future, we get to fill in the gaps. That we get to truly come to a place where we understand. Now it's just so small. It's as small as the power from the sun that hits the earth. That's how much we understand. And, and as we spend time, more and more time, in eternity with our God, maybe we'll get just a little bit better of a glimpse of all that He left to come to this earth. Of all that He did. Because if I was doing this, I certainly wouldn't have done it like this. Right? I would have had angels all around him i i would have had a big glowing you know glory behind him i would have had mary going like this right all sorts of things but that isn't what the lord does and and picture this scene on on top of all of this so so now it's time and 
Okay, we'll, we'll just assume that, that they've been there for a couple weeks. And Joseph had all this time to get everything in order. And, and yet it appears that, that, that Joseph didn't do a very good job being responsible and, and finding a place for his wife, right? He, he didn't seem to make a reservation. And so now when push comes to shove, he's, he's searching all over and he keeps coming up short. And he's no doubt wondering what is going to happen. Where am I to go? And in all of this, God had already made a reservation. God had already had this all planned out from the beginning. And he had chosen the perfect spot. But of all the places to choose, he chooses this spot that I'm sure Joseph is going, what? You, you, you want me to take my wife here? This is where she's going to birth the Savior? It didn't make any sense, but it was totally God's plan. And so it made all sense to God. And in this, I think as well, it points to the humility. And isn't this encouraging to know that even in our weakness, just as the weakness of Joseph, God continues to lead us. God continues to guide us. So this should be hope for those of you who haven't finished Christmas shopping yet. There's still a couple days. You know, I make light, but the reality is that God goes with us. And we see this, even in the life of Joseph. But, but add more. Look at verse 7. And look at the pronouns. Okay, sometimes grammar is very important. The pronouns meaning look at who is involved in the birth. She gave birth to her son. She wrapped him in claws. She laid him in a manger. Where's Joseph. We have, have had some babies at home, and you know what my job is? My job is to catch that baby. My job is to wrap that baby. And my job is to give that child to Shannon as quickly as I could. Where's Joseph? Where is he in all of this? Or at least, where's the midwife? That's what's expected. That is the norm. So when I said before, what God does is take the ordinary... The extraordinary, make it ordinary. No, it's, it's even less than that. He takes something that, that should be the norm and he says, no, you know what? I'm, I'm going to actually make this abnormal. Why? To show the magnificence of this time. To give it more emphasis. Man, this should drive us to our knees in adoration and praise for what he has done. And to also see God's grace in this. Because you know what? Mary didn't die. She was alone. How difficult. We're, we're talking like the Siawi people in Papua New Guinea. We'd see them leave in the morning by herself, fully pregnant. She'd come back that afternoon with the baby. Carrying with the umbilical cord still wrapped and, and we'd have to cut it. She delivered that baby by herself, walked hours after that back. I don't believe that's exactly what's going on here. But she did this by herself. To show to us how gracious our God is and how he looks after us and how he looked after Mary. You know, what's even more amazing to me is going back to verse four. Remember what it said there? It it said that that they went to Bethlehem, the city of David. I know that we tend to think of Bethlehem as this little nothing town. Because that's what Micah 5.2 presents it as. Oh, it's, it's you, small little town of Bethlehem and Fathron. You're, you're really nothing. But the reality is, the way the Jews would look at Bethlehem, they didn't look at it as nothing. It had a rich history as, as far as Israel goes. 
It went all the way back to, to Rachel, Jacob's wife, and that she was buried there. And then, and then it goes to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and, and that's where their whole story takes place is in Bethlehem. And then it goes more and it gets to David. Do you know where David was born? He was born in Bethlehem. Do you know where David was raised? He was raised in Bethlehem. Do you know where Samuel came and anointed David as king? Here in Bethlehem. If there's any place on God's earth where a king should be born, it's Bethlehem. And where a king should be born in a palace, it's Bethlehem. And is there anyone more of a king than the Lord Jesus Christ that came to earth who deserved a palace? No one. And yet, even in that... He's not born in a palace. He's not even born in a normal home. All this again speaks to God's wonderful grace and this gift, this present that He's presented to us that we are going to celebrate in so many days. Isn't this a wonderful time of year? Even as families? Think with me for a moment. What what do you enjoy so much? You enjoy going back home for Christmas, do you not? Do you remember when you were in college or or you were away from work with work doing something and then it came Christmas time and, and what happens? Well, you travel back home and you were so excited about getting back home and celebrating Christmas with family and friends, right? Think about this. There's coming a day when, when it will, we will have the most glorious Christmas gathering, the most glorious Christmas party ever. As the Lord Jesus Christ will gather His family, right? We will gather together with Him, with His chosen ones. And during that time, what? We will celebrate the King. We will celebrate this chosen one. We will celebrate this this baby born in a manger. But when I say we, I mean we exclusive. That, That doesn't mean everybody is going to be celebrating. For some of you this morning, you have never trusted Christ as your Savior. You've come to church, you've done all sorts of things, and you think that that is what is going to buy your road to heaven. And that is not the case. Do do you know if you are going to miss this great big Christmas gathering that that will include not just Americans, right? It will include all tribes, all nations, all nationalities. Can you imagine? And, And we would not want to see any of you miss this. And you don't know what's going to happen from this point on when you leave here this morning. The day to trust Him as your Savior is now. And why do we even have a Christmas? Why do we celebrate Christmas? I'm not saying, why does the world celebrate Christmas? I'm talking about Christmas like we've been looking at here for the last month, for the last so many weeks. I'm talking about a Christ-centered Christmas. Why do we have Christmas? Because we needed help. Because we needed a Savior. And that is why God sent Jesus to be born in a manger so that then He could go to the cross. And have you trusted Him? Have you accepted His present? Do you even know how to accept this present? Jesus says it like this in in John 5.24. He says this, Truly, truly, he who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of what? Passed 
from death into life. This is how you accept His present. You trust Him. You believe in Him as Savior. You confess to Him, yes, I am a sinner. And if it was only up to me, and if it was only because of my sin, and I can never do anything to earn your favor, well, then I would go and spend eternity in hell paying for my sin. But I trust You, Lord Jesus Christ, that You paid for my penalty. The punishment that should have been mine you took upon the cross. If you believe that this morning, then you are a child of God. If you trust in Him and Him alone, and if you have never done that before, if you've never placed your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, please consider that this morning. And after the service, come and talk to one of us. We would love to talk with you about this. As we would so much love to have you come home with us. When everything is done and our life is finished here on this earth. Let me let me close real quick with some points to ponder. I've already touched on these, but these would be good things for us to all to consider as we are walking towards Christmas here in just a couple days. Number one, consider how Jesus chose to keep his glory veiled. What what does it mean to you that the glory of the son of God was obscured while he was on the earth? Now, there are times like the Mount of Transfiguration where you catch a glimpse of Jesus' glory. But for the most part, He did keep it veiled. Why? Because He's showing His humility and His grace and His love. Number two, consider the birth city of Jesus. Just what we talked about, Bethlehem. It was the royal city of David's anointing to be king. This city was to be the birthplace of the coming Messiah, the coming king. How come Jesus was not born in a royal palace? Why would God allow His Son to be born in a stable when He should have been born as royalty? How does this make Christmas and the celebration of Christ's birth significant for you during this season? Let me close our time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we stop and we thank You. We, we thank You for, for doing the unthinkable. And we pray that You would allow us to continue to to offer our praise and thanksgiving to You as we consider what You have done on our behalf, why You sent Jesus to this earth to be born in a lowly manger, Lord, when He deserves so much more and we deserve hell and eternal punishment, but You have lavished Your grace upon us by sending Your Son. Thank You and go with us as we go from here. In Jesus' name. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www. Dot ranchobaptistchurch.org That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him. <laughs>